Well, howdy, if you're here, you must have liked the first episode. This is episode two of two episodes with Lo Nickel, who's a geologist that was kind enough to drive down from Denver to Moab to be interviewed for this project. She's really wonderful, and she has a lot to teach us about uh, wildfire ecology, as well as how communities can become more resilient in the face of a very fiery future. In this episode, we're continuing quite a few conversations that we began in the previous episode, so you should definitely go listen to the other one first, otherwise some things won't really make sense. Uh, For some more context for you, we're sitting at the base of a climbing tower. Good shake, buddy. We're sitting at the base of a climbing tower uh, in Moab, and we're in the back of Lowe's built-out pickup truck. It's been kind of drizzling a little bit, and the wind's been picking up, and we're uh, continuing with the interview there. And we're at this point, we are, I think, two seltzers deep, or seltzers, ciders, whatever. Um, so that you might that might provide a little bit of context for you as to why our voices are the way they are but uh with that being said please enjoy that wind sounds and all to uh kind of speak on some personal experiences here sorry (laughs) um so this morning i I did a dawn hike a sunrise hike inside of arches national park with some clients and the clients that i work with are generally very very wealthy and they can afford to hire me, I personally don't have high prices, but the guiding company that I work for has exorbitant prices. So this tour that I did was um, close to $1,000 for a five-hour tour. That includes transportation and water bottles, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Selling it, selling it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But just to give you an idea, like, that's just kind of the the thing that that you're looking at to pay for these spaces. So I think it's really fascinating how nowadays we have this... Um, socioeconomic disparity between people who are allowed to or who are able to safely and responsibly recreate because they can hire a guide versus these people who are not and the people who are not able to afford these things are looked down upon because they're busting the cryptobiotic soil crust and because they're walking off trail and and they're littering because they don't have somebody there to tell them hey don't do that (laughs) and and I think it's important to understand too like yeah, like I, I don't. I'm not trying to come at this from the perspective of like if, like, if you're not wealthy enough to afford these like very Eurocentric um, opportunities, then don't go. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. It's more of that like, if you have the means to engage with it in this way, do it because it's it can be worth it. It can be worthwhile. Do some research on the companies that you're working alongside. Do some research into the activities that you want to do and what you personally want to gain from it. And on top of that, too, like, there are so many other ways to engage with the outdoors without needing these services. <laughs> like, I'm I'm pushing for them from my own personal bias as someone who has spent a lot of time in this specific ecos, like, these, these specific climates. Um, I mean, we have a myriad of them, but overall we live in a very dry, arid climate with a lot of incredibly delicate organisms present. Um, but if you don't have the financial means, that's in no way a reason to not go. It just means that do what you can to prepare in advance. There's, mm-hmm. There are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of communities that can be talked to. I 
have been blown away by the kindness of my peers over my years. Like to, to give some background, like I moved to a small town. My small town is subjective in, in Southern Utah, um, in the opposite corner of the state, Cedar City, uh, and knew absolutely nothing about being outside, but there wasn't much else to do in town. And so over the four years, my skill set has culminated from the privilege I've had having access to the landscape, but it's come at the price of me consistently trying to find people with a little bit more experience than me and getting outside and utilizing their knowledge. It hasn't been a lot of me going out on my own until I had that skill set in place. And I found so many resources in my peers that were as a college student putting myself through school, having grown up in poverty, like they were accessible, they were reasonable. And a big part of that comes from being so close to it. So I guess that doesn't cover all bases, but, but like there are ways to engage with this landscape because we, as individuals across this land, and this is again, subjective, like we do have a right to engage with this land. They are public lands that we get to use, (laughs) that we get to be a part of, that we get to interact with. And everyone has that right to engage with it, but it's our role as caretakers to this public land to make sure that everyone gets to engage with it, that everyone has access to it. So I didn't, I don't want that conversation to veer in the place of like, you have to hire a guide or anything. It's more of just the fact that it's like, figure out what resources best represent what you want to gain from the trip. And they're out there. Totally. I think that's a really good way to say it. The resources that you want to gain. And I think those are mostly intellectual resources that you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to know, <laughs> like, you cannot utilize the resources present on these lands. They are here for conservation. There's a distinct difference in how different government agencies use public lands. Some agencies will be a lot more, um, I mean, as you know, this is more just speaking in general. Other Certain agencies will be more interested in conservation and truly protecting every aspect of a landscape, and that includes to visitation. That means restricting visitation and access because the priority is what is already there and Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily our right to prioritize ourselves over the organisms present in that delicate ecosystem we also have a lot of government agencies that tend to prioritize um well i guess that would be conservation that what i'm speaking about before is preservation preserving those intact ecosystems as best as possible. And a lot of times that means limiting access. Conservation, however, is something that is more aptly used by government agencies such as the Forest Service, where we are conserving resources but utilizing them in a way that best benefits our current population while preserving enough of those resources for future generations. It comes down to a lot of debate on how effective that is and again that comes into a conversation of like are we doing this in a way that is less sustainable than our indigenous caretakers to this land and that's another big discussion to have that I don't feel is my right like it's it's more of me bringing awareness to it I'm not going to speak on behalf of it but there is a difference in what kind of land that you're interacting with and there are again resources out there to kind of see like are you planning on how do you plan on utilizing this land and what type of trip is best going to benefit those goals 
And so, yeah, resources comes down to intellectually, like, how are you interacting with this landscape? What do you seek to gain from your time spent exploring those intrinsic ties to the landscape? Nice. Just to summarize, preservation is more of the action of uh, making land unused, protecting it um, without utilizing the resources on that space. Generally, that also involves restricting travel. Um, we see this a lot with wilderness study areas, specifically at WSAs, um, whereas conservation is utilizing the space and utilizing the resources um, trails, off-road trails as well, hunting, things like this. Um, and I think it's also important to note that the Forest Service, up until the last two to three decades, was really seen as a business agency where business owners, uh, specifically timber operations, would work with. That, that was the, the point of sale, right? Um, so knowing this and knowing that hunters are the single biggest uh, donors and perhaps one of the biggest income sources for our landscape here, would you consider yourself more of a preservationist or more of a conservationist? I don't think I would align myself necessarily with either mentality because I think that there's so much overlap. I mean, you were even mentioning too that like a lot of people that would probably, when it comes to that binary, more align themselves to conservationists as specifically hunters are the ones providing a lot of opportunities for preservation of these landscapes through the financial means, the taxes on receiving permits alongside simply donating to those causes, those organizations, those nonprofits. Um, personally, I, my work aligns more with conservation. And that is because my work is with the Forest Service. So not speaking on behalf of my employer, but my work does typically align with permitting for cattle uses alongside timber sales. I study a lot. A lot of times I'm spent studying um, the impacts of water infrastructure and like if that's genuinely supporting the amount of cattle we have on that land and making the adjustments necessary to preserve or at least conserve um, <laughs> that land even though it's being utilized annually by a permittee across that allotment with a little bit of background of that with the forest service at least how it functions in the capacity of southern utah is um, your forest is divided into allotments and a permittee is able to utilize that land by putting their cattle on that specific allotment and they pay to use that land for a specific portion of the year. That has to fall within a contract, and that contract essentially sets up parameters to make sure that we are conserving the landscape and that there's a period of recovery before cattle utilizes that landscape again. And it does try to set precedent over the like native animals on that landscape. This can be really arguable on whether or not the Forest Service necessarily does a good job to meet this balance, because in a lot of ways, like you're mentioning, the Forest Service still very much is in, it, it's not part of our Department of the Interior. The The Forest Service is actually underneath the USDA. It's It's actually under the Department of Agriculture. So their primary interests are not necessarily going to align with the mission statements of our National Park Service, your WSAs, and even the BLM. 
and then the BLM <laughs> too. It, it gets so muddled because then uh, you have the BLM, which also initially took over a lot of lands that were seen as undesirable by most of European settlements across the United States, but is now in a lot of areas, a great place for drilling and oil development. So these are very transactional landscapes in the context of how we're utilizing them today. <laughs> I know that was like a total tra- rant, but like, no, yeah, I can't align myself with either because I feel as though morally, I would like to say that I align myself more with the idea of preservation, but in how I engage with the landscape, it is very much more conservation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like your term transactional landscapes. Yeah. And I, I think you have an extremely valid point there. Um, because I, I'm of the belief that you can't love what you don't understand and you can't understand something without appreciating it. And how can you appreciate something without knowing it? And so now we have the question of how to protect these landscapes while making people... How can we protect a landscape without letting people enjoy it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, how can someone ever appreciate canyon country if they've never hiked it? And if they can't appreciate it, they're never going to want to protect it because they can't love it. So I think without conservation, there's really no... We're going to lose more than half the people that... Are there and certainly most of the new people that are that we're seeing uh, that are traveling domestically post COVID, people that are finally exploring their backyards that are understanding what the landscapes are that are around them, people who are not like us who didn't go to school for this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too, it's really important to. At least I've learned throughout my time in this landscape, it is really important to acknowledge that everyone seeks to gain something from this land and those interests don't align. (laughs) Like it's very rare that those interests align. And I don't, personally, I don't think that we do a very good job in prioritizing voices that need to be heard. I, I think we we see that very blatantly, especially in the Four Corners region, with the quelling of addition, uh, like the the silencing of indigenous voices. And um, currently, I mean, we're very much closer here than where I'm at to the ongoing battle of not battle, but I mean, um, political tension surrounding Bears Ears and the restoration of lands that were given back to those stewards and. And then we have this, you know, point in our discussion where, where we're talking about the donations of hunters and people that we wouldn't, as personally, between the two of us, um, neither of us really enjoy hunting. I mean, at least I don't. Um, but that's not to say that I can't acknowledge that those individuals have overlap in my beliefs. So it's, I think it's crucial that we acknowledge common ground across a vast array of interests. We all seek to gain something from this land. We need to do a better job on what we put back in because we can't continue to take from a land that has nothing left to give. 
it's getting it's getting no reprieve mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a very good perspective too i think we all seek to gain something it's pretty powerful stuff We've talked a lot tonight about (laughs) understanding the landscapes that you're in and and how can you do that when you're on a time bracket, you're on a price bracket. If you, say, can't hire a guide and you're going on your vacation or your spring break or whatever to these landscapes, you want to enjoy our conservationist landscapes to understand them and inhabit them and gain experiences that way. You spoke about how everybody seeks to gain something from this land. Some people like to take rocks home. Some people like to take photos home, which is obviously a lot better than rocks to take out of our our natural spaces. Um, But for me personally, it is extremely um, frustrating and mentally taxing to give these tours inside of these federal natural spaces and watch people trying to climb on top of the arches two to three times a week i tell people it's a big rumble i don't mean to interrupt you (laughs) oh that's not your stomach oh rude i had enough (laughs) cheese and crackers before this actually yeah that was a good one um so like two to three times a week i'm telling someone to get off of mesa arch and as i'm telling this there's a sign five feet away from me with a picture of an arch a picture of someone walking across it and a big x on top of it and so i am of the opinion that when you travel to a new space domestically internationally it is your responsibility to research that culture when you go to France, you research the culture so that you don't offend anybody while you're there, so you don't say something that's going to get you stabbed in an alley, you know? And while our natural world is not quite as literary as that, I'm of the opinion that it is your responsibility to research the ecology of these places and research how to make as small a footprint as possible, because at the end of the day, you're already flying to these spaces, you're already driving to them, your footprint is massive. You've got a plastic bag on your back, and I don't mean plastic grocery bag, I mean your hiking bag is made of plastic. You've got aluminum trekking poles, you're probably eating instant meals while you're out there and doing God knows what else. Most of these people in the parks are drinking out of plastic water bottles. And so I really, honest to God, if you believe in that kind of thing, (laughs) believe that it is your job as much as it is your job to research culture, it's your job to research the ecology of these spaces and understand them so that you can be a responsible steward of the land if you want to go that far, but at the very least, be a responsible inhabitant and try and make your footprint as small as possible. I mean, the Leave No Trace motto is take nothing but photos and leave nothing but footprints, and I think everybody should try and embody that, but I'm curious to what your thoughts are on that. I think I, I have a lot of different thoughts on this. Ultimately, I want to say that I do agree with what you're saying. Another part of me comes from the background of like, I had no idea of how to engage with landscapes until I was physically present in them. I mean, I'm still learning things about my impact and that's not something that's going to ever stop. And that's part of the appeal for me personally. So ultimately, I feel as though with acknowledgement 
to the socioeconomic limitations of engaging with the outdoors and with acknowledgement of the barriers that so many individuals face, whether it be on the color of their skin, their religion, or other prejudices that we have in our society, like with acknowledgement to those, yes, people should do what they can to take the few minutes out of their day to read up before they come to Zion National Park, come to these landscapes. If you're planning a cross-country road trip or an international trip to view these landscapes, yes, it is your responsibility, I agree with you, to read up on how best to engage with that landscape. Simultaneously, I feel as though there are massive disparities that we have yet to address in who gets to engage with these landscapes. There is the kind of acknowledgement that like, I mean, at least for me, again, like I'm a white woman recreating on these lands with little to no acknowledgement of my indigenous communities present in these landscapes. And I believe that some of these voices do triumph ours when it comes to how we engage with those lands. And we need to do a better job of encompassing those voices when it comes to interactions with the landscape. So ultimately, like, yeah, it's our responsibility to do our research when we have the ability to do so. I personally feel like a big part of giving back is to let myself just say the same things over and over again when I'm out guiding or to take the few minutes to have that conversation with someone as kindly as possible to make any experience a learning experience because in those actions I'm learning from others too. Like this is for a lot of people their first time interacting with a landscape that can just be life-changing and it's not at all my place to make that a negative interaction in any capacity. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, definitely a very heavy topic. A hard one to tackle, too, because yeah. it begins with acknowledging that you're kind of an intruder in these spaces. Definitely, yeah. No, this this is not... I mean, yeah, I'm an, I'm an outsider to these lands. Like, this is, this is not my land. It is a privilege that I get to recreate on it. And anything that I can do to give back, um, even if that means saying the same thing over and over again when there's a sign five feet away, it's worth it. I mean, it's worth it when it comes to the protection of a land that's so easily degraded. Yeah. That was an extremely productive talk. I'm feeling <laughs> very hopeful after it. Um, and I think you, you've you knocked me back into some perspectives. I was getting a little, uh, a little possessive of these landscapes, I think. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from being not really less of an intruder but more of a local in these spaces that I'm working in every day and having people that are that have just arrived off of the plane and just arrived out of their car um and having to tell them you know tiptoe around the crypto don't bust our biological soil crust get off the arch pick up your water bottle that you just threw out of your car and things like that and I think that can pretty easily um breed some frustration um so with that being said, I think we should all try and be better stewards of the land here to the best of our ability. Um, take the advice that Lo and I have given you today 
and get a Garmin. Practice with your Garmin. Figure out how to use it because we don't want to rescue you. We, it, I mean, we do. Like, if it comes down I, to yeah, it, I mean, like, I, I'd rather. When it comes down to it, I'm I'm never gonna say no. <laughs> yeah, I think we would both rather do a rescue than a recovery but at I, the end of the day. But when well, it comes down to it, I mean, my my biggest rule outside is would I do it on a first date? Oh, hmm, interesting. Could you say more about that? <laughs> um, would I would I leave my trash out on a first date? Mm. Would I? walk where I'm not supposed to walk on a first date, like in someone's house. Like if I was, if I was going into my date's house, would I just start poking around right away? And you know what? Some people would say yes. Yeah. And like, <laughs> that's hard to, yeah, because I do not have the confidence to be, to do that. Um, but I, my personally, my biggest rule outside is would I do it on a first date. And as a very timid person, nine times out of 10, the answer is no. Um, it, it would take a little while until I knew that person until I, I was close to that person. And, I, and I'm not trying to personify the landscape because the landscape is an entity of its own. But if that's what makes it more achievable for me to recreate with caution and with kindness, then that's a step I'm willing to take. Mm-hmm. So would you do it on a first date? And usually the answer is no. So I wouldn't necessarily do that outside too. Yeah. Wow. That is an extremely interesting perspective. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. That's definitely something I'm going to share on tours, if you're okay with me stealing Yeah, that's that. totally fine. I, mean, I love it. It's, it's worked well for me over the years. Yeah, yeah, and that's so interesting, too. Like, the, um, I think a big issue that we face inside the national parks, specifically in these highly trafficked areas, is uh, a lack of interpretive resources, right? We're, I mean, the, the park staffing model that's currently being utilized and the signage is all based off of either the early 2000s or the early 2010s, which obviously is completely irrelevant now. Um, If you look in the book, The 21st Century Predator, there's a statistic there that it shows that the visitors to arches specifically have multiplied by multiple factors. And so now we're just looking at a basic equation of the same exact park staffing and resources that is competing with a growing visitor base and it just simply can't keep up. And so I think it's a very interesting comparison you have because people obviously don't necessarily have signs in their house saying, you know, like, don't enter this room or like, don't throw a floor right next, don't, don't throw a floor, don't throw (laughs) trash right next to the garbage can on the floor. Um, And neither necessarily do these national parks. So we're both working with unwritten rules here that um, for most people who are visiting these spaces are understandable cultural common sense things but for some people that are visiting they're just not yeah Um, and and it's important to acknowledge too like a lot of these spaces aren't always accessible like I, i think i keep going back to that too is that like it's it wouldn't be fair of me as a i although i do struggle with a chronic illness i mean I am very able-bodied and able to recreate these spaces in a way that a lot of my counterparts cannot. I come from a lot of privilege. Like, my interactions with the space come with cultural context and a lot of other acknowledgements that I think consistently need to be made in how I recreate with the land. So there's a lot to be said about, like, not necessarily giving people the benefit of a doubt, but learning from others and how they interact with the land. But ultimately, with the visitation that we see here, like, I don't know if you'd necessarily agree. I have the biggest, gosh, diddly darn ant on my leg. And I'm going to scream. I'm so sorry, buddy. <laughs> um, sorry. 
I like didn't want to hit him too hard. <laughs> trying to get him, I was like trying to flick him. He wouldn't you know go. That ants are not heavy enough um, to cut to sustain any damage once they reach terminal velocity. Is that why they can just fall so far? Yeah. So you, I mean, assuming a safe landing zone, and and if we reduce air factors, if you dropped an ant out of a that makes out of cruising so altitude, sense. it'd be fine. So much sense. I say we drop ants from like that space. You know, like the Red Bull dude. Yeah. Uh, Felix, whatever. Yeah, we drop ants from that height. Yeah. How would we find them though? How do you track an ant falling like <laughs> oh two God. miles, two vertical miles? <laughs> Probably more than two vertical miles, right? I don't know the exact number. Well, if cruising altitude's 30,000 feet, miles what, 5,800 roughly? 5,280. 5,280. Oh, look at you. Denver. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so then that's, yeah, gosh, he probably jumped from like eight miles, 10 miles. Wow. Something. That's wild. Anyways, we take some ants. Yeah, and we throw and well anyway this is the end of the podcast <laughs> thanks for reaching here um thank you Lo, for all of your your yeah, beautiful thank insights you for having me of course <laughs> this is it's a lot of fun a... i was definitely nervous <laughs> yeah it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for changing my perspective on um the whole fire cycling thing i, I really had this perce- this preconceived notion there that um some at certain points ecosystems can be ready for fires and cannot be ready for fires i mean and i guess maybe to clarify a little bit more just like briefly on that like with the impact that we have had over the past 150 years, I wouldn't necessarily hold that perspective towards the idea of ready versus not ready. There is a prime habitat that is obtainable in terms of a forest being able to routinely have fires that clear out that undergrowth, that are sustainable fires that allow for the continuation. Like, I am so happy to provide whatever resources I possibly can discussing fire ecology because it's so diverse. It's so... I mean, it's beautiful, these ecosystems, the way that they have really, really specialized themselves to adapt to fire with the infrastructure that we have in place across, especially the Intermountain West. That is not something that's necessarily attainable right now because we have so much built up fuels after decades of suppression. So our forests are incapable of navigating fires without them becoming incredibly severe and permanently altering those landscapes. Nice. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for clarifying that. Um, so with that being said, you're headed to your new job soon, um, and you've got a lot of experience under your belt already. Do you have any fun facts about rocks or fires or anything like that that you'd like to share, no matter if it's relevant or not? I don't think I can maybe try and pull it up, but I don't know for sure. I don't want to give the wrong numbers off the top of my head because I actually did absolutely no research coming into this podcast <laughs> besides what was already in my head. So I just, I, I hate giving out statistics that end up being wrong. Yeah. But my favorite one is about lightning versus human caused fires. Um, but I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, which yeah. is like so frustrating. I love being able to whip this one out. But if you had to, I think it's something like, I think it's like only 40% of, and this is from a few years ago. Let's give this like about two years since this statistic was really made two, three years. But I think it's only about in the Intermountain West or maybe it's the United States in general. I'm so sorry. Don't quote me on this. Lowe later texted me that this statistic was wrong, but I am a four hours drive from the nearest 
paved road and I do not have service, so I can't give you the actual statistic, but this is just a lesson to do your own research. But it's like 40% of fires are uh, caused by lightning as opposed to human caused, but they burn 60% of the acreage, Mm. if that makes sense. So then 60% of wildfires are human caused, but they don't necessarily burn as big. And that makes sense because they're closer to population and resources where they're more accessible typically. If someone has accidentally started a fire, whether that be through OHV usage, just a fire got out of hand, ammunition that actually fires, um, that sparks, fireworks, it's usually more accessible and those fires can get put out more quickly. But lightning, which isn't necessarily as common, I might have the statistic wrong, but it definitely burns way more acreage a lot of times it happens in more inaccessible areas. So I think that was a big statistic for me to reframe how I think about the role of humans and their interactions with fires. Fire is an ongoing issue and we need to shift our perspective of fires. It's not that they're happening more frequently. It's that when they occur, climate change and other compounding factors have led to them being incredibly severe and posing a massive threat to our populations, whether that be through the loss of infrastructure or the degradation of our water. And those are two really important factors as we think about coming into tw- the 2020s and beyond, because these are issues that are not going away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, on the the water note there just something super exciting this week that we talked about earlier today was uh their seeding water levels in lake powell oh my gosh yeah we were just talking about that earlier today where here in the coming days slash weeks we will be seeing a record low for lake powell well not not record low (laughs) since (laughs) since the filling since the filling i mean since lake powell was filled Mm -hmm. record low for lake powell (laughs) Super. I mean, that's probably a bummer for most people, but I'm super stoked to hear about that. I think it definitely puts into perspective, like, how we look at how beneficial these structures are in the grand scheme of things and in the long-term presence of human populations. Yeah. And how sustainable our infrastructure is, especially as two people who rely on the... I mean, you more so than me, but rely on the Colorado River Basin's watershed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My water is, I mean, my entire water system is 500 feet from, from my the, cabin. Yeah. Literally, like I can, I can Off go the Colorado. and get my water pump. Yeah, I, I can yeah. throw a rock into the Colorado from my place, which is really cool. And I think um, water's a mystery for a lot of people and they have no idea where it comes from. I think we're we're sold this illusion right now about water that it's cheap and safe and I mean it's virtually free, you know. Um I think the and don't quote me on the statistic, but I think it's over 1000 times the price of to, to buy a bottle of water, you're paying over 1000 times the price than you would getting it from your tap. Um because you're not actually buying the water, you're you're buying the plastic bottle and so all these companies aren't actually water companies they're yeah, plastic bottle companies. companies that's crazy i didn't really think about that but i think we will start to see the implementation of like water becoming a costly commodity yeah <laughs> and, and i think those those are already being implemented from what i understand in places like logan mm-hmm. um 
We're starting to see the restriction of water across Las Vegas with watering, no longer watering non-essential grass. Um, we're really seeing certain reservoirs dry up to try and keep the Colorado River flowing. Um, and it really calls into question the long-term nature of the infrastructure that we've built and now rely on just yeah. over the past hundred years, over the past 50 years mm-hmm. here since the sixties. I mean, what, 60 years now? Yeah. I mean, historically humans have always lived adjacent to water because that's, that's the resource that's the heaviest that we need the most frequently aside from oxygen. Right. But the, <laughs> um, but I, yeah, like we're, you're absolutely to your point. The last couple decades we've seen human societies, uh, metropolis is booming away from water sources in the middle of the desert. Las Vegas is a prime example of that. Um, and so now what we've surpassed the point of being able to recognize the mistakes of building places like the Glen Canyon Dam and now the, the um, revenge of water, to, co- to quote Charles Fishman in, um, in The Big Thirst, is that we're being taught a lesson now. You know, we, we've caused this irreversible damage and now things are reverting to the way they were and cities are going to have to begin to make critical decisions about their water, which normally was just something that was swept under the rug that you didn't even have to give a thought to. And now people are going to start to suffer from dehydration or relocation. We'll see. I, a great book if you'd really like to explore the existential dread of <laughs> um, of uh, climate change and the and just the impacts of us as in general. This is an international issue, obviously, um, but it's called a the uninhabitable Earth. Um, pull up who this is by because I actually oh, actually know no service. I don't know why. I can pull it up. But the uh, the uninhabitable Earth. I'll send you the link because um, the author is eluding me right now. But it is many hours of just statistics talking about the direction that we're heading worst and best case scenario and this book came out I think in 2019 I'm pretty sure it's just before the pandemic Mm. um and uh it's, it's interesting now as more recent studies come out to actually show that in some ways we're on our worst case scenario path Mm. unfortunately and and there's still time to make change I mean this isn't like a hopeless cause but there is the acknowledgement that our social mentality needs to shift now in order for us to be able to meet the changes because no matter what lives are already being lost in the thousands so that's a whole different conversation (laughs) obviously I don't want to try and shove this into, into this conversation but there's plenty of resources out there to talk about the fact that although we're already kind of down an irreversible path there's still so much that we can do as a society to come together and do what we can now to make those impacts less severe, especially for nations that are going to be seeing higher ramifications, despite not necessarily being the ones most at play in the issues at hand in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Different conversation, though, for sure. Yeah, I'd love to get into it, <laughs> but I think I think I'm already gonna have to split this into two parts, which yeah. is awesome. Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, final fun facts. Any stats 
or tidbits. The only one I've got in my mind is that dragonfly, but that's just because I'm terrified of dragonflies. I would love to hear it again. I would need to double check the exact number, and I told you earlier, I was a little confused, but like dragonflies catch like 90% of their attempted prey, and I just think that's too powerful. (laughs) (laughs) It just scares the hell out of me. What was the other one? The, the, uh, African, the African wild, wild dog. dogs are like uh, 85% is, uh, yeah, 85% success rate with attempted like hunting. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know how you'd phrase that, but yeah. you know, absolutely insane. Wouldn't want to catch myself in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you think that's a cognizance of what to actually pursue, like a, a recognizing of what you can capture, or is it a physical prowess? Oh, I don't know. That's definitely not my realm at all. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do know it's more of a pack thing for the African wild dogs. It's mm-hmm. it's a pack hunting thing. So, But I, I don't know what skill sets are utilized in order to be that dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's it might be kind of difficult to believe that it's cognizance from a dragonfly, right? Obviously, they're, they're rather well, they've intelligent. They've managed to stick around for a few hundred million years. <laughs> No, no, not that long. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> but like a, a few dozen million years at the very least. Yeah. I don't know the exact. Oh, it's really starting to sprinkle. A few dozen million years. Since the dinos, right? How old are dragonflies? I, yeah, They're older least. than dinosaurs, yeah. right? Maybe. Yeah, I'd They're say, definitely a Cretaceous uh, thing. Yeah. I don't know. Don't ask me. I'm not a paleontologist. <laughs> cool. Um, all right. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Um, is there anything you want to promote? I have absolutely nothing. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, well, Lo is pursuing her masters right now. Ooh, there goes another can, (laughs) although they don't have anything to promote at the moment. Do a search on their name soon, and I'm sure you'll find something. Give it a few years. (laughs) Give it a few years. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was Low Nickel for you out there doing the Lord's geological work for all of us here back home. Thank you so much for joining us, Low. I really enjoyed doing this interview with you and in such a cool spot and we had such great weather, finally a relief from the heat. If you enjoyed this episode, please go check out some of the other ones. They're uh, on some similar topics and they kind of bleed into each other. Um, Thank you so much for listening and thanks for making it to the end. I'll see you in the next one or maybe the last one, depending on what you click on.